Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. During our last episode, we discussed Olympe de Gouges and her Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen. We learned how de Gouges was accused of treason and beheaded, and her work never really took off in France or elsewhere, as evidenced by the fact that if you say the name Olympe de Gouges, most people will not have heard of her. However, there was a woman in England writing at the very same time on the very same subject. This was the famous Mary Wollstonecraft, and her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, with Strictures on Political and Moral Subjects, is one of the most famous and influential works on this subject in history. Like some of our other texts, this book is so densely packed with material that we've decided to break it into two parts. So today we will introduce Wollstonecraft and talk about the historical context in which she wrote. We'll talk about the Enlightenment and some of the contemporary authors with whom Wollstonecraft was arguing, and we'll talk about the balance of reason and emotion. But before we start, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Megan Cahoon Alder. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. Megan and I met in Santiago, Chile, when we were 21 years old. We were kindred spirits right from the very first moment, and even though we haven't lived near each other in many years, every time we reconnect, I am amazed at both how much we are still alike and how much I admire you, Megan. I feel like you are a trailblazer and a role model for me, and I'm so grateful for your example as we've gone through all these years of life as friends. So thank you so much for being here. And um, could we start by having you tell our listeners just a little bit about you, where you come from, and kind of what makes you, you? Thanks, Amy. Sure. I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of your project. Thanks for having me. Um, a little bit about me. I come from a large blended family. My oldest sister and I come from my mom and dad. I have six siblings from my dad and my stepmom. There's eight of us all together, seven girls and a boy, so we're a pretty big bunch. And we're all really close, and I wouldn't trade those relationships for anything. I grew up mostly in Northern California with just my mom and visited my dad twice a year for summers and Christmas. Uh, around 16, after having an incredible experience in therapy myself, I decided I wanted to be a therapist when I grew up. Even though at 16, I wasn't sure what kind of therapist. I just knew I wanted to help people the way I had been helped. I'm also a seventh-generation Mormon, which is pretty relevant to this podcast, as its entire structure is based on a patriarchal foundation and definitely has a huge part to play in how I view and experience the world. And it is through my service, right, just like you said, in the Mormon church that I met you in Chile at the ripe old age of 21. <laughs> and I have a lot of things to say about that experience. It's probably best left for another podcast. Um <laughs> Fast forward to coming back from Chile, I got married and graduated from the University of Utah and headed out to Maryland for graduate school. I went to Virginia Tech in Northern Virginia for a master's in marriage and family therapy. I worked for a couple of years with adolescents and their families before we had our first daughter in 2007. Our son came just 18 months after that, and then three years later, we had our third. We had a, another girl. We struggled to get and stay pregnant. So while I had some pretty complicated feelings about quitting my job as a therapist, I, I looked forward to being home with them. As time passed, though, I felt like a very important part of me was put on ice. 
And as that ice started to melt, that part of me became pretty restless. And I realized that staying home without attending to that therapist aspect of myself was not going to be sustainable. So I began a little life coaching practice on the side, and it was great at the time, but it didn't really quite quench that thirst to be back in the therapy room. Um, So I kind of was just pushing pause on all of that. And then in 2014, John was offered a job at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and one of the perks was free education for spouses. And even though we both had some serious reservations about going back to Utah after being away for 12 years, um, we just decided to go for it. And I was going to go back to school and get a PhD in marriage and family therapy. So that same week that I had received my acceptance letter to the PhD program, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she had actually recently moved to Utah to take care of my grandfather. So During that time, we had her come live with us while she had surgery and went through chemo for the first time. Um, Her cancer actually grew back about 16 months later, just as John was recruited for a different job at the University of Pittsburgh. Turns out that BYU was actually a terrible fit for him, and he was so miserable in his professional life. I had one more year left that could all be done remotely, so we packed up our four-generation household and moved to Pittsburgh. We, we actually had my grandpa with us for those last years of his life, um, as well as had, our, had my mom with us, and it really was a gift to be with him when he passed last year. Let's see. Currently, my mom's cancer is back, and we've all decided that cancer's the worst, and we're trying to make the best of a really crummy situation. I finished my PhD about two years ago and started a private practice. I have a great little office downtown. Um, in Pittsburgh. And that's actually been sitting empty because of the COVID global pandemic. And it's been empty for about eight months and that's killing me. But I'm hopeful that I'll return to it someday in the not too distant future. You will. You will. Life will return to normal. I, I have to say, first of all, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. Um, you're such an example to me, Megan. I I just adore you and respect you so much. And I want to say I'm so sorry about your mom and best wishes from the bottom of my heart to her and to your whole family right now. I just can't imagine how hard that must be. But your mom is so, so very lucky to have you and just sending all of you guys love. <laughs> thank you. Um, again, thank you for that, that really wonderful intro. And if you don't mind, I usually ask one more question of my reading partners, and that's just a little bit about what interested you in doing this project. Sure. Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind um, is because it was you asking, Amy, (laughs) and I I knew it would be high quality. Um, My experience with you around issues of patriarchy and feminism have been so important to me. You have a way of expressing what is deepest in your heart in a way that matches what is deepest in my heart. And I just knew I could trust how you would handle this topic with such thoughtfulness and care. And then second, uh, a year or so ago, we were chatting about feminism and our experiences in the patriarchy. And you mentioned the book Creation of the Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner. Mm -hmm. And I think I went and bought a used copy that same day. And then as I was reading it, I would text rant 
to you about how maddening it all was and how it can, how, you know, can it be that after all of these centuries, we are still in this place? And you said something to the effect of, oh, we should start a book club so we can discuss all of this and understand it better. You know, and I said, yes, absolutely sign me up. And Mm -hmm. this project turned out to be bigger project than a book club, but I am really honored to be a part of it. Yeah, I totally remember that. Uh, thanks for that reminder. I love that. And and thank you for those kind words, Megan. Um, yeah, I totally remember both of us saying, like, as we were reading The Creation of Patriarchy, that we had to take breaks because mm-hmm. it brought up so many feelings of frustration and anger. Um, but at the same time, it was therapeutic personally and really important for us to understand and, like, put language and frameworks to these feelings that had been kind of nebulous before. So it was really valuable, but really kind of hard. And you told me earlier that reading this text, the the Wollstonecraft was a similar experience, that it was kind of hard to keep reading sometimes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did have a hard time with Vindications of the Rights of Women. Um, I would get through a chapter and just kind of have to set it down and walk away for a, a while. And, you know, we'll discuss some of the main reasons why later on. But the arguments she has to make to just be taken seriously were often really painful to read and hit close to home. And that same feeling, you know, that here we are so many years later, still having to argue for our value and worth. It just, yeah, it hits home. It does. It's hard. I would say that this education is not for the faint of heart, right? (laughs) Right. right. It's hard. It takes courage to confront it. Um, but, you know, Wollstonecraft was writing in the Enlightenment. It makes me think of Immanuel Kant, the quintessential Enlightenment thinker who said, sapere aude, dare to know. Um, sometimes knowing hurts, so it does require require courage, but it's worth it. The process is worth it. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I want to start with a couple of background topics as we launch our discussion. If you look up A Vindication of the Rights of Woman just on Wikipedia, the first sentence describes Mary Wollstonecraft as an 18th century British proto-feminist. The second sentence describes her book as one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. Okay, so by now, listeners know that word definitions are really important to me. And so we're going to pause here really quickly and talk about the word feminist. Um, Of course, we also could have covered this during the episode on the creation of feminist consciousness, but it's appropriate here as well. So first of all, using the terms feminism or feminist can be controversial among historians when applied to people before the term was used. So the Oxford English Dictionary lists 1852 as the year of the first appearance of the word feminist and 1895 for the word feminism. And um, those words were first introduced in France. I thought it was interesting that the word feminism didn't appear in the United States until 1910. Hmm. Wow. And then, yeah, interesting. We're always behind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And actually, France is always ahead, at least in um, women's issues, it seems, or at least they were for a while. Um, The second thing is that the word feminist can be controversial in the general discourse because some people interpret it. In my view, they misunderstand it um, to mean an effort to elevate women above men and to subjugate men. 
Um, and the truth is that idea doesn't just come out of thin air. Some feminists in the 1970s women's lib- liberation movement did advocate for female supremacy. But I personally know a whole lot of self-described feminists, and I don't know a single one who thinks that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that. And um, yeah. every single feminist that I know subscribes to the definition that is in the Oxford Dictionary, which is this. Quote, feminism, the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes, end quote. And if you look up um, Oxford reference, there's an expansion of the definition, a portion of which reads, quote, the approach to social life, philosophy and ethics that commits itself to correcting biases leading to the subordination of women, end quote. So those are the definitions that we will be working with when that word comes up anywhere on this episode or any other episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy. Um, And I think it's interesting for today's discussion that Wollstonecraft is described in retrospect as a proto-feminist. Proto, of course, meaning the earliest or a precursor to a feminist. And we'll see why she's described this way as we discuss her work. Um, Okay, and one last thing before we dive into the book. Let's talk about who Mary Wollstonecraft was and what led her to produce the work that made her famous. So we're going to take turns talking about her. And Megan, do you want to take the first part? Yeah, sure. Mary Wollstonecraft was born in London on April 27th, 1759, the second of seven children, Her father was a violent alcoholic who mismanaged the family fortune and would sometimes beat his wife in drunken rages. As a teenager, Mary used to lie outside the door of her mother's bedroom to protect her. She played a similar maternal role for her sisters, Everina and Eliza, throughout her life. Mary's education was somewhat haphazard, which was not entirely unusual for someone of her sex and position. Mary read a lot, and her mind was shaped by relationships with families who mentored her and by her friendship with Fanny or Francis Blood. The two were best friends, and after Mary's mother died in 1780, when Mary was just 21, Mary moved in with the Bloods. And in the winter of 1783, Mary ended up and left the Bloods in order to attend to her sister, Eliza, who had just given birth to a daughter. When she arrived, she found her sister in a terrible state of depression, Scholars now wonder, actually, if it was postpartum depression. And uh, Mary's solution for Eliza was to leave her family. So Mary and Eliza left Eliza's husband and baby and went into hiding for a time. The baby died the following August, and Eliza, who was unable to remarry, lived the rest of her life in poverty. So sad. This was a terrible time for Mary. Prior to Mary's visit to Eliza, Mary and her other sisters and Fanny Blood had set up a school together, but Fanny soon became engaged and moved to Lisbon, Portugal with her husband in hopes that it would improve her health, which had always been pretty poor. Despite the change of surroundings, Blood's health further deteriorated when she became pregnant, and in 1785, Mary left the school and went to Portugal to help Fanny after the birth of her baby. Tragically, Mary's abandonment of the school led to its failure, and even more tragically, after, the, after giving birth, both Fanny and her baby died. Fanny's death devastated Mary, of course, and was part of the inspiration of her first novel, Mary, a fiction, that she wrote in 1788. 
After Fanny's death, Mary got a job as a governess. Frustrated by the limited career options open to respectable yet poor women, which is a topic she would write about a lot in her life, she decided to quit her job as a governess and embark upon a career as an author. This was a radical choice since at the time few women could support themselves by writing. And let's be honest, it's still a pretty risky choice. As she wrote her to her sister Everina in 1787, she was trying to become the first of a new genus. She moved to London and assisted by the liberal publisher, Joseph Johnson found a place to live and to work to support herself. She learned French and German and translated texts. She also wrote reviews for Joseph Johnson's periodical, The Analytical Review. Wollstonecraft's intellectual universe expanded during this time, not only from the reading that she did for her reviews, but also from the company she kept. She attended Johnson's famous dinners and met such luminaries as the radical pamphleteer Thomas Paine and the philosopher William Godwin. Godwin and Wollstonecraft did not like each other at first. They met at a dinner party, and Godwin said, Wollstonecraft followed him around all night, disagreeing with everything he said, which I just think is funny. (laughs) But keep Godwin in mind because he does come back into the story later on. Uh, In 1787, Mary started to write her own work in the form of essays and books, one of which was called Form the Mind to Truth and Goodness and was illustrated by the famous artist and poet William Blake. The French Revolution was underway at this time, and the English were watching it with careful attention. In 1790, a conservative member of the English Parliament named Edmund Burke had written a critique of the French Revolution called Reflections on the Revolution in France, and it so angered Mary that she spent a month writing a rebuttal called A Vindication of the Rights of Men in a letter to the Right Honorable Edmund Burke, which supported the values of the revolutionaries. It was originally published anonymously, but a second edition later revealed her as the author, and she became famous overnight. Now, Wollstonecraft called the French Revolution a, quote, glorious chance to obtain more virtue and happiness than hitherto blessed our globe, unquote. And the events of October 5th and 6th, 1789, when the royal family was marched from Versailles to Paris by a group of angry housewives, Burke praised Queen Marie Antoinette as a symbol of the refined elegance of the old regime. And he called the women who captured her, quote, furies from hell in the abused shape of the vilest of women, end quote. Wollstonecraft, by contrast, wrote of the same event, quote, probably you, Burke, mean women who gained a livelihood by selling vegetables or fish, who never had any advantages of education, end quote. It was around this time that Olympe de Gouge published her Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen in 1791. Mary began a work of her own in agreement with de Gouge's declaration and also in disagreement with an address to the French National, National Assembly, which had just been given, which stated that woman's education should consist only of domestic training. Wollstonecraft wrote The Rights of Woman to launch a broad attack against sexual double standards. She published A Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792, and it was relatively well-received at the time. 
On December 26, 1792, Wollstonecraft saw the former king, Louis XVI, being taken to be tried before the National Assembly, and much to her own surprise, she found, quote, the tears flowing insensibly from my eyes when I saw Louis sitting with more dignity than I expected from his character in a hackney coach going to meet his death, end quote. So incredible that she was there for that historical event. No kidding. France declared war on Britain in February 1793, and Mary was stranded in France. Despite her sympathy for the revolution, life became very uncomfortable, and as an English citizen, she was in frequent danger. Some of Wollstonecraft's French friends lost their heads to the guillotine. Around this time, Wollstonecraft met and fell passionately in love with Gilbert Imlay, who was an American adventurer um, having an adventure in France at the time. She put her own principles in practice by sleeping with Imlay, even though they were not married, which was unacceptable behavior from a respectable British woman, but was in keeping with her beliefs on sexual freedom. Wollstonecraft soon became pregnant by Imlay. And on May 14, 1794, she gave birth to her first child, Fanny, named after her friend who had died. Wollstonecraft was overjoyed, and she wrote to a friend, quote, My little girl begins to suck so manfully that her father reckons saucily on her writing the second part of The Rights of Woman, end quote. She continued to write avidly despite the burdens of being a new mother in a foreign country and the growing tumult of the French Revolution. However, Imlay, unhappy with the domestic-minded and maternal Wollstonecraft, eventually left her. He promised that he would return to her and Fanny, but his delays in writing to her and his long absences convinced Wollstonecraft that he had found another woman. Her letters to him are anguished and depressed. She was a foreign woman alone with an infant in the middle of a revolution, and she had seen good friends imprisoned or executed. In May 1795, she attempted to commit suicide twice. But she survived, and she finally accepted that Imlay wasn't coming back. She returned to England and gradually went back to her literary life, becoming involved with Joseph Johnson's circle again, in particular with William Godwin. Remember him from the dinner party where they didn't like each other. Um, Godwin and Wollstonecraft's unique courtship began slowly, but it eventually became a passionate love affair. Once Wollstonecraft became pregnant, they decided to marry so that their child would be legitimate. But their marriage revealed the fact that Wollstonecraft had never been married to Imlay. And as a result, she and Godwin lost many friends. Hmm. Um, But after their marriage in 1797, Godwin and Wollstonecraft lived together. And Godwin rented an apartment 20 doors away as a study so that they could both still retain their independence. And they often communicated by letter. By all accounts, theirs was a happy and stable relationship. Sadly, on August 30th, 1797, Wollstonecraft gave birth to her second daughter, Mary, who would actually grow up to marry the romantic poet Percy Shelley and become a famous writer in her own right as the author of the novel Frankenstein. But although the labor and delivery seemed to go well initially, the placenta broke apart during the birth and became infected. Childbed fever, as it was called, was a common and often fatal occurrence in the 18th century, 
And after several days of agony, Wollstonecraft died of septicemia on September 10th, 1797. Godwin was devastated. He wrote to his friend Thomas Holcroft, quote, I firmly believe there does not exist her equal in the world. I know from experience we were formed to make each other happy. I have not the least expectation that I can now ever know happiness again, end quote. Wollstonecraft was buried at Old St. Pancras Churchyard, where her, tomes, her tombstone reads, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, born April 27, 1759, died September 10, 1797. So usually we stop the biography at the author's death, but there are some important other details regarding the way Wollstonecraft's work was remembered. So Megan, could you talk about those? Yeah, sure. A year after Mary's death, her husband William Godwin published memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Although Godwin felt that he was portraying his wife with love, compassion, and sincerity, many readers were shocked that he would reveal Wollstonecraft's illegitimate children, her love affairs, and her suicide attempts. Her reputation lay in tatters for nearly a century, and when her name was mentioned, it was only in scandalized gossip about her personal life rather than her work. And here we do have to point out that this was never the case regarding male writers. Many male writers had illegitimate children and affairs and depression, and no one even batted an eye. The double standard that is still alive and well today was even more severe in the 18th century. There were some writers who managed to read and take seriously Wollstonecraft's book or, and her work, so they were able to keep it alive somewhat. Jane Austen never mentioned Wollstonecraft by name, but several of her novels contain positive allusions to Wollstonecraft's work. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who read The Rights of Woman at age 12, composed her poem, Aurora Lee, as a reflection of Wollstonecraft's unwavering focus on education. Lucretia Maud and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Americans who met in 1840 at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, discovered they had both read Wollstonecraft. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a couple of episodes. And actually, our next episode will highlight Sarah Grimke, who also read Wollstonecraft because she borrowed it from off of Lucretia Mott's coffee table. Isn't that awesome? I actually really love hearing about how these women found each other through her work, that there's, yeah. you know, this this tie that they all have together. I love that Browning read it at age 12, right? It just, yes. I love this. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. By 1929, Wollstonecraft's shame was being beginning to fade somewhat. Virginia Woolf described her writing arguments and experiments in living as immortal. Wolf said Wollstonecraft is, quote, alive and active. She argues and experiments. We hear her voice and trace her influence even now among the living. Finally, in the 1960s and 70s, the world was ready to take her work seriously, and she was included in the canon of important women writers. I love that. I think that's so interesting and important to know that she did really fall out of favor for reasons, mm -hmm. like you pointed out, Megan, that were completely hypocritical, that never would have impacted what people thought of as the quality of a man's work, right? To have right. those scandals, that was just kind right. of par for the course for a man. Um, 
But people were so hard on her as a woman for having those scandalous parts of her life that her work was almost lost, like forever. Um, But then, as you said, just those little kind of passing the torch, these women of keeping it alive so that then... um, so that then we could know about it now and read it and discuss it today. So um, so finally, we'll move on to the text. We could spend hours talking about Wollstonecraft's insights, but we only have time for a few key points. So we divided it up into main themes, and we'll just take turns highlighting a few that we thought were the most important. So I'll start, and I wanted to just begin by introducing... Um, a really important figure that kind of formed the background for this work. This is the genius philosopher and real piece of work, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's uh, probably the most famous for the idea of the social contract, right? That's when how you learn about Rousseau in school or whatever. And um, he was a, a mightily influential public figure. And Wollstonecraft battles Rousseau all throughout a vindication of the rights of woman. So I want to start by talking about some of his ideas that she's um, contending against. So one thing I remember from reading Rousseau's discourse on inequality was um, that he kind of fancied himself as an anthropologist. He would observe human behavior and then imagine a prehistoric story to explain the behavior. So kind of like the opposite of the scientific method, <laughs> like right. take, taking an assumption and then just finding a reason why that assumption is, <laughs> is true. Um, so he would say things like, you know, oh, in a state of nature, our earliest ancestors must have done this or that. And he didn't have any proof because that kind of thing wasn't known back then. But sometimes he was right. And and sometimes he was wrong. But he would just make these conjectures with a really authoritative tone. And it makes him sound like he knows what he's talking about. And Mm -hmm. he does the same thing with women. He makes observations about women. And then from those observations, he extrapolates these reasons for them. And he makes bold claims about the quote unquote nature of women, and thus what their role should be in relation to men. Um. So I just want to share some really choice quotes that Wollstonecraft grappled with in the uh, Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And these quotes, again, are um, Wollstonecraft quoting Rousseau, and then she responds to him. Here's the first one. Quote, It being demonstrated that men and women are not, nor ought to be, constituted alike in temperament and character, it follows, of course, that they should not be educated in the same manner. They should not be engaged in the same employments, end quote. And we'll just let that one stand on its own. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Megan, can you read the next one? Yes, I'd be happy to. The education of the women should be always relative to the men, to please, to be useful to us, to make us love and esteem them, to educate us when young, and to take care of us when grown up, to advise, to console us, to render our lives easy and agreeable. These are the duties of women at all times, and when they should be taught in their infancy. Lovely. It's a, it's a real a gem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. what a peach, that guy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's we can laugh about, I mean, these yeah. make us laugh, but it's like really well, infuriating and it would be yeah. so hard if this was like a public intellectual 
spouting these things off from his platform, right? And right. really influencing the culture. Um, yeah. This the that quote in particular, the one you read, is really important because while Wollstonecraft does really vigorously disagree with Rousseau that women exist you know, that quote, to please men, to take care of them, to be useful to men and make their lives easy and agreeable. She really disagrees with that. She does appeal to part of Rousseau's reasoning, um, where he says, quote, to educate us when young, right? She she asks for better, better educational opportunities for women because that will make them better mothers. She mm-hmm. says, quote, If children are to be educated to understand the true principle of patriotism, their mother must be a patriot. And the love of mankind from which an orderly train of virtues spring can only be produced by considering the moral and civil interest of mankind. But the education and situation of woman at present shuts her out from such investigations. Mm. End quote. So she's arguing that women were shut out from a high-quality education, which they were, and which they needed in order to be better mothers. And this idea was a very popular one in the United States as well, and it's known as Republican motherhood. Um, After the American Revolution, citizens of the United States were very interested in creating a virtuous, well-educated democratic republic. And so... To that end, they thought, well, to raise smart, virtuous boys, we need smart, virtuous mothers teaching them. And so women were allowed to be educated in the service of the republic. And that was the reason given to kind of justify Mm -hmm. investing in women's education. So, I mean, I don't have a problem with part of this, but I would want to change a couple things. First of all, I feel like if we apply it to mothers, then we also need to apply it to fathers, Mm -hmm. observing that well-educated mothers and fathers produce well-educated children. And that does benefit society as a whole. I do believe that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, But second, I would want to change it by emphasizing that women and men have the right to education by virtue of being human beings, period. Right? They're worthy of the investment of education, whether or not they ever have children. And I could relate to this kind of in my personal life because I was just thinking about how when I started my master's degree, I heard kind of a version of this argument all the time from people, from Mm -hmm. like really well-meaning people, right? When um, I would talk about like, yeah, I'm going to be starting my master's and they'd say, they'd be, you know, trying to be supportive and, um, they would say like, oh, that's that's so great. But then kind of this cautious like, oh, but how are you going to have time? And won't that take time away from your kids? And by the way, people are never concerned, I feel like, if a woman is going to spend a ton of time away from her kids in church service or volunteering at the school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I feel like right. it's only if a woman is investing in her education or her career, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, well, that's time away from the children. (laughs) Right. And they don't even notice if it's time at church away from the children or time like in the classroom or or being the room mom. But to be supportive of me, they would also say that like, they'd say, yeah, well, your kids will really benefit from that because an an educated mother benefits her kids. And so then it was like, oh, 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 yeah, that's that's okay then. Mm -hmm. And and it's, I mean, that's not untrue. It's it's true. My kids have definitely benefited from my education. It's just that the implication of that 
statement is that a woman on her own isn't worth educating. Right. It's only if she's benefiting children that a woman is worth education or is worth educating. And actually, and in Wollstonecraft's time, like it was specifically to educate sons, right? Because it <laughs> right. was the sons that were going to grow up yeah. and create a strong republic. So that was my thought on that. What yeah. do you think, Megan? Oh, a thousand times yes. <laughs> I had a, I had three kids when I started my PhD program. You know, the youngest was three, and it would burn a little bit when people would ask me, "Well, what about the children? You know, what's going to happen to them?" Mm-hmm. And no one said a word about John to him, you know, about his extensive work hours and time away, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as if his contribution was negligible or that it didn't matter. But no, I mean, that really is laid at the woman's feet to manage and deal with those types of comments and, you know, kind of just figure it out. But the implication being that it's not okay to further your education if it's just for your own sake. Right. Of course, your education is going to benefit the people around you. And that is a beautiful byproduct, but does not have to be the sole purpose of being educated. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, a beautiful byproduct, but not the sole purpose. I love that. um, And Wollstonecraft did agree with that, too. Right. Um, She used that. That Republican motherhood justification, um, she used that in one part of the book, but she did also say, quote, the end, the grand end of women's exertions should be to unfold their own faculties and acquire the dignity of conscious virtue, end quote. So, right. and so she really, sorry. No, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it just really, how radical it is, is what she's saying. You know, like if you even just have to fight and you have to come up with like the Republican motherhood justification and then for her to go on, because that might have been the thing in her heart, right? The end, the grand end is to Mm. unfold their own faculties. You know, maybe she's really having to bite her tongue, sit on her hands to Mm -hmm. not say those things because it was probably so radical. That's true. Definitely. And especially in context of what the, you know, the thinkers and kind of the the definers of what culture should be, what they were all saying at the time, which, exactly. you know, yeah. Rousseau was a huge part of that, right? So she was this, you know, small voice contending against, um, you know, the powers, the powers that were at the time, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, Okay, so the next gem from Rousseau is, quote, a man speaks of what he knows, a woman of what pleases her. The one requires knowledge, the other taste. The principal object of a man's discourse should be what is useful, that of a woman's what is agreeable. We ought not, therefore, to restrain the prattle of girls in the same manner as we should that of boys with that severe question, to what purpose are you talking? But by another, which is no less difficult to answer, how will your discourse be received? They ought to observe it as a law, never to say anything disagreeable to those whom they are speaking to. Um, I can hear you. <laughs> and you're, and you're, taking you're, you're like, <laughs> you're taking deep breaths. Totally. I can like hear the smoke coming out of your ears. <laughs> I am so oh angry goodness. too. Yeah. I'm so angry Just reading this. So gross. Yeah. 
It's terrible. And it's so angering because it's not just a theory, right? Like, this is real girls' lives and real women's lives. I have had so many conversations with so many women and girls through the years, through my whole life, conversations with myself more than anything, right? Mm -hmm. Just struggling with constant worry, constant anxiety um, as women, especially about how we're being perceived. And it Mm -hmm. feels like girls are trained, like almost through osmosis, just picking it up through the culture from the time we're born, that our role as girls is always to please others. And I think this constant anxiety about what other people are thinking about us can destroy our mental health. And then here is Rousseau prescribing that exact behavior for girls. I have never read it so clearly, like, um, advocated, like, that, that boys should be thinking about, you know, the purpose of what they're talking about. And girls should be thinking about how they're perceived. Right. It's just heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I, my other thought was that I'm sure Rousseau wasn't the first one to think this. Like, he's probably not the only one that thought this way. He was probably just expressing the belief of the time. Mm-hmm. But again, he had a platform in society. And so he participated in perpetuating that belief and making sure that it passed on from generation to generation. And girls and women are still grappling with this and really suffering with it. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, just the emotional energy that it takes up, the brain space that it takes up to be thinking about those things at all times. You know, there've absolutely been studies done on kind of diminished capacity for, you know, STEM subjects when your brain Mm. is being taken up by how do I look? How do I sound? Are they thinking this about me? Are they thinking that about me? I mean, it it does absolutely have a mental health impact. Wow. Well, thanks, Rousseau. Yep. (laughs) Thanks. Terrible. For that. Thanks for that. Okay, let's read some more since this is so fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's so important, though. Um, Am I taking this next one? Yes, please. Will you read that? That'd be great. As the conduct of a woman is subservient to the public opinion, her faith in matters of religion should, for that very reason, be subject to authority. Every daughter ought to be of the same religion as her mother, and every wife to be of the same religion as her husband. For though such religion should be false, that docility, which induces the mother and daughter to submit to the order of nature, takes away in the sight of God the criminality of their error. As they are not in the capacity to judge for themselves, they ought to abide by the decision of their fathers and husbands as confidently as by that of the church. Mm. Wow. Yep. As they are not in a capacity to judge for themselves. Right. They, they ought to abide by the decision of their fathers and husbands. There it is. There okay. It is. We'll let yeah. that stand too. I mean, there's not much that we even need to add to that. That's just, there it is. There it is. Okay. And then in that same atrocious vein as that last quote, um, 
is a thought from another influential thinker. So those were all of the Rousseau quotes we have, but I'm going to do one um, from another man that Wollstonecraft quoted a lot, and his name is Dr. Gregory. Dr. Gregory had written um, a book called Dr. Gregory's Legacy to His Daughters, which was a book of advice to his daughters. And so Wollstonecraft uh, Wollstonecraft quotes him uh, by saying, quote, Be even cautious in displaying your good sense. It will be thought you assume a superiority over the rest of the company. But if you happen to have any learning, keep it a profound secret, especially from the men who generally look with a jealous and malignant eye on a woman of great parts and a cultivated understanding, end quote. So there we have it. That gives us kind of an idea of the prevalent beliefs about women from some of the most influential thinkers at the time. And this is what Wollstonecraft was contending with when she wrote her book. Yeah. And, you know, with all of that as the backdrop, it, it makes a lot of sense that one of the strongest arguments she makes throughout the whole book is about elevating women's ability to think rationally and to Mm -hmm. use reason in order to become a virtuous human. Or even to just be taken seriously at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's fighting against the argument that um, there really should be gendered ways of becoming virtuous. Women, you know, the argument being women should attend to womanly virtues and men just, you know, regular virtues or the default virtues. But she argues that in reality, the path towards virtue should be the same for both men and women. And in order to help women along that path, they, they need to learn how to reason. And so she says, quote, women are not allowed to have sufficient strength of mind to acquire what really deserves the name of virtue. And without that strength of mind, they are not going to be able to wrangle in those parts of themselves that can lead to bad habits or vice, just like men. So reason is the attribute that's going to help keep all of that in check. She says, women as as well as men ought to have the common appetites and passions of their nature. They are only brutal when unchecked by reason, but the obligation to check them is the duty of mankind, not a sexual duty. Here she's arguing that everyone has the possibility of falling into bad habits or, you know, getting vices based on desires or passions, but it's everyone's responsibility to curb them, which in turn will produce moral and upstanding citizens. And women need to be allowed to learn how to do that. And at that time, they just weren't allowed Mm. (laughs) to even really be thinking critically at all. And so, you know, throughout the whole book, she places reason above everything else. And, And there's this lens of emotions are only something that get in the way. They're only for the weak. And most of all, they belong in the realm of women. And that lens has such tendrils that you really can see its impact everywhere, even today. So as I was thinking about this, I I really found this theme and how it made its way into my field of marriage and family therapy in one of the most foundational theories of our discipline. One of the theoretical underpinnings of this particular model is to help clients separate thinking from emotion to bring about what's called differentiation, which is the ability to still be in emotional contact with someone without kind of getting caught up in the anxiety that comes with attachment relationships. And on the surface, this does sound like a good idea. When we're able to regulate our emotions, we're much more likely to have healthy relationships, right? If if we aren't able to do that, as the theory goes, 
we're likely to either emotionally cut off from those relationships because we're unable to manage the intensity of it, or on the flip side, we run the risk of becoming codependent or enmeshed. So, you know, they're really kind of seeking like this happy middle. And theoretically, that all sounds fine, but the consequence of that approach is that emotions are deemed as, you know, almost irresponsible, but certainly lesser or inferior to that of reason. And I see Wollstonecraft doing the same thing here. She needs to make her argument this way because reason is the language of men and men have the power. So to get the foot in the door or just even a toe in the door, she has to come Mm -hmm. from this angle, keeping the sensibilities or the emotional in its inferior status. And as a consequence of its inferior status, it's, you know, cast aside and it's deemed as the realm of women. Yes. Yeah. And I think it would make sense to me that that stems from that ancient Greek notion that chaos is feminine and reason is masculine, right? Mm-hmm. And it, the Greeks thought of female emotion as being hysteria, right? right. The, the Greek word hysteria, which um, comes from the word for uterus, right? right. And the Greeks just disdained mm. the feminine. We know this. Yep. And um they established the masculine as being, by definition, a rejection of the feminine. And it just makes me think, too, the Enlightenment period was um, a period which was kind of neoclassical, right? So those classical ideas were being, um, you know, revived. And uh, this had also followed the scientific revolution. And so during the Enlightenment, I, th- I think the pendulum was just really swinging hard against the centuries that had preceded the Enlightenment, where the church had control over every aspect of life. And so as people were rejecting the church and rejecting spirituality, they were emphasizing their own reason. And and that's, you know, I would imagine why they turn to the philosophies and sensibilities of the Greeks and Romans. And you can even see it actually in the architecture of the time. If you think of um, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello or the White House that, you know, buildings that were being built at this time, the this, this style also is neoclassical um, and it, it just looks very Greek. It looks like mm-hmm. Greek temples. And the music even, too, was like very mathematical and precise. If you think of Mozart and Haydn, you can kind of almost just set a metronome to a lot of their music mm-hmm. and it just keeps going and doesn't deviate. Right. It's just very mathematical and very masculine, very reason, um, reason oriented and Interestingly, as a tangent, the pendulums did swing hard again the next century mm-hmm. into the Romantic period, right? Where all the poetry and the music got super touchy-feely and there was <laughs> right. like that res- resurgence of religion and spiritual life again. But but back to the Enlightenment and back to Mary Wollstonecraft, um, I think you bring up such a really interesting point with her rejection of emotion and her needing to use reason. And I was thinking about... Um, a period in my life where I kind of went through uh, a phase that was a little kind of similar to that, where in college, there was a while that I would not wear pink. I would not wear makeup. I actually carried a man's wallet in my back pocket, like a leather folded wallet that like made a little rectangle in like, your um, on my, in yeah, my jeans, like, like my dad, <laughs> like I, and um, 
it's it's so strange to me now to look back because I do remember telling people like I'm not a crier I never cry I haven't Mm -hmm. cried in years and um it's just so obvious to me in retrospect what I was doing Mm -hmm. I think I wasn't aware of it at at the time Mm -hmm. at all but yeah I think I had just picked up on the message that I wasn't taken seriously as a girl Mm -hmm. and I certainly wasn't taken seriously in the world if I showed emotion. Right. And so I was just trying to divorce myself of that part of myself. And I think that's probably what Wollstonecraft was doing. And it makes me think too sadly that this might be what boys and men are doing sometimes for their whole lives, right? Because boys and men are taught, really taught to dissociate from their emotions because they're seen as feminine. And, and, and because if you show emotion, you're not taken seriously in the world because the world is male. And, and that just makes me so sad because I think it, it's to the detriment of their mental health and maybe even their relationships when boys and men do that. But you're the expert on that, Megan. What do you think? Oh, I could not agree with you more. Yeah, these disowned parts of ourselves show up in all kinds of ways, you know, just out in the real world and then definitely shows up in the therapy room. And, you know, going back just a little bit, what's interesting is that um, even though marriage and family therapy was founded on these notions of downplaying the chaotic and feminine Feminists did come along and made all of this very explicit rather than just, okay, we're going to accept it, that it's just this way. And they said, hey, you know, you're presupposing that emotions are an enemy to quality relationships and you're elevating reason beyond where it belongs. So there's something wrong here. This can't be the whole picture. And soon theorists and researchers looked more deeply into emotional processes and began to understand that emotions are in fact a crucial part of the human experience. And Mm. now what kind of presents as a challenge is that we don't really have the faintest idea how to express those emotions in a way that our partner or whoever, you know, we're in relation with can understand or in a way that ensures that our needs and our attachment longings get met. And so we're really prone to getting caught in these negative interactional cycles And so what I see in my office is a lot of people thinking they have a real clear understanding of what their problem is. And if their partner would just do X, Y, and Z, then everything would be solved. It would all be fine. And typically X, Y, and Z are very rational and reason-oriented actions. But those solutions do not tend to the underlying emotional experience of either partner. And so they don't usually work long-term. You know, it might work uh, for a second behaviorally, but it doesn't really get to the to the core of what's going on. And so both people end up feeling misunderstood. And even worse, they feel isolated in feeling misunderstood because they don't have a way to reach out and to express it. So mm-hmm. yeah, we've had centuries of placing reason above everything else. And research and outcome studies have shown that we learn how to attend to our emotional experience and then we learn how to communicate what it is that we're feeling, we're going to create lasting change in a way that pure rationality and reason might not be able to accomplish. Now, I'm not saying that that approach doesn't work at all. It definitely has its place. Um, I'm saying that our emotions are such an important part of our human experience that our understanding of ourselves is so enriched and deepened in a profound way when we can attend to them and share that with another person. 
And I'll also say, uh, just going back to what you were saying about um, men's experience, I it's just such a travesty when men who have the same vulnerabilities as women, wanting to know that they're loved, that they're lovable, that they have value. I mean, these are just human attachment longings and needs, right? They want to know that they have value outside of what they can provide and that they matter on a deep level, that they're so stifled by what the patriarchy has told them that they're authorized to feel or to convey. Like they get to show anger or sexual desire. You know, if it's other than that, they better keep a lid on it. Don't show sadness. Don't show despair. Don't show hurt. Certainly don't cry. Right. So when they experience the, those emotions, you may never know it because they've become so good at, at having to, like you said, divorce that part of themselves. So you might see anger. You might see an increase in libido. You might see silence. What you're not likely to see is expression of those vulnerabilities. You know, of course, I'm making generalizations from my experience as a therapist and, you know, just an observer of humans. I know there are people who do not fit that description, but this is mostly yeah. what I'm seeing. Well, I, I mean, I was going to say that fits a lot of men that I know. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think it must be. You know, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, but um, I feel like it, at least just, you know, in, in my experience, especially men of our parents' generation and older, mm -hmm. um, I think, luckily, I, I don't know what you think, but I feel like during our generation, the conversation started changing a bit, at least. And I feel like many people are raising their boys differently now. Mm -hmm. So thank goodness things are changing. But that it does depend on where you live, right? And th the culture where you live and even your particular family. And so a lot of boys are still really being completely emotionally stifled. So yeah, that's a really, really useful thing to bring out. Um, from this text, Megan. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It, it all depends on who you live with, like where you live mm -hmm. and your particular family, for sure. And, you know, getting back to Mary, I, I know she had to present her argument this way, right? She had to argue for women to be allowed into the realm of reason. And 200 years later, we may finally be making room for men to be allowed into the realm of emotion. And I will yes. also I will also add that that allowing women into the realm of emotion and have that not be denigrated, right? Yes, yes, yeah. So um, I I'll say that being on the front lines of that, there is um, a poignancy to seeing couples go through decades of disconnection and misunderstanding because they have not been taught to attend to this part of themselves, and as they come through to the other side having learned about this emotional part of themselves, learning its value, learning that it usually has something really important to say, and then learning how to say it, inevitably there is this shared grief for lost time that they could have had feeling connected and feeling loved. But it, it is definitely worth the effort. Wow. Those are amazing insights, Megan. I am so grateful that you're bringing all of your wisdom as a therapist to the conversation on Wollstonecraft. This is so relevant um, and so helpful. Um, 
that is actually where we're going to wrap up today's discussion. So thank you so much. Um, And then next time we will discuss Wollstonecraft's thoughts on subjects such as women's education, beauty and fashion, women's role in religion, and chivalry. So listeners, read up if you can, and then join us next time for part two of Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Thank you.